Hey, Bahadia, it's Nina. Today, we have Dr. Zainab Bahrani, an Iraqi professor of ancient Near Eastern art and archaeology at Columbia University. Professor Bahrani is the author and editor of 12 books and more than 50 articles, in which she writes on the status and meaning of images and of art in general, addressing both ancient and modern philosophies of representation. One of her early works, The Hellenization of Ishtar, particularly intrigued me due to its deep and unique analysis of the pre-Islamic female form. She discusses concepts of the body and ideologies of gender in both ancient Greece and the Near East. Dr. Bahrani's literature on the subject is the only of its kind, which is why I feel so lucky to have her here today. Please welcome Professor Zaina Bahrani. Hi, Dr. Bahrani. It's, it's Nina. Hello. Oh, hi, Nina. <laughs> Thank Hello. you so much for taking the time to meet with me and accommodating me into your schedule. It means so much. It's uh, my pleasure, Nina. And it's so nice to meet you, even though it's virtually like this. Yeah. Um, so I'm currently a high school in a senior in high school uh, at Horace Mann. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. I am. I am. Um, and I'm so excited to speak to you today because while you're incredibly, uh, I mean, beyond well versed in the ancient Near East and also gender ideologies, um, it will. Your interest in gender ideologies is very interesting to me because it doesn't seem to be a particularly talked about subject in the field. Um, so that's one thing. And then the second thing is that personally, I feel a huge urgency towards protecting Mesopotamian like cultural heritage, which in many ways is the history of humanity. And so at a point where, you know, Iraq's historical narratives are being actively erased, um, I feel like preservation uh, efforts are really important. But for me personally, it's important that I take the time now to try and understand or learn more about my heritage um, before it's gone forever. So really, thank you so much for contributing to that. It's my great pleasure. And it's a pleasure for me to meet um, a young woman like yourself who, who does care about this material. And I certainly want to encourage more young people to, to follow this path because we do need people um, to continue the work. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, so... Regarding your paper, The Hellenization of Ishtar, 
Um, I was very interested in really all aspects of it, but first I was wondering if the ways in which women were being depicted was actually reflective of women at the time, or if it was just, you know, they were being depicted as the epitome of what a Near Eastern man wanted. Well, I think that this is a really good question because it, it applies to so many periods of time, not just to Mesopotamian antiquity, because of course, representation or images are never just a direct reflection of reality. And even if we look at our own world today, images very much um, present to us these idealized uh, visions. So the same can be said about ancient Mesopotamia, that often what we see in the images of women are idealized forms, they're idealized versions of the female body, for example, or about the roles of women. But having said that, what I would also add is we can still learn something um, about uh, what women's lives were like and what they wore um, and what they may have looked like. Um, I'll give you an example. For, for example, we can see something about the way that they um, would braid their hair and put it up and the way that they put jewelry um, on and, and the, the shapes and types of jewelry that they wore. Um, and we know that this is the case because we also find the jewelry when we excavate. So then we can compare it and then we can see, oh yes, this is this, the same type of earring, this large hooped earring, for example. Um, which they often wore kind of a lunate uh, shaped earring, like a, a big um, hoop that almost looks like a crescent moon, that we find these also in the archeological record. Um, we find them when we excavate made out of gold. So we know that, that these are um, things that they would have worn to adorn themselves. Um, we find also uh, for example, ribbons hammered out of gold that would have been woven into the hair. And, you know, because you are um, from that region, you know that our hair is very thick and, you know, often curly. So putting it up in, in plates or um, braids uh, allows that possibility of inserting ribbons of gold into it or rings of gold into it. And so dressing up meant also dressing up the hair. Um, and that's represented in the images. And we can also see it um, in the material that comes up in the digs. Um, so I think we can see something about their lives there. Um, the other thing that I would say about those plaques that you were so interested in um, that represent uh, the nude females is where they are found. Because of course they're not found in um, contexts like ancient art galleries. Um, they're found um, sometimes in religious contexts so that we know they offered them as gifts to the gods. So let's say um, to a goddess like Ishtar you might offer an, an image like this as, as a devotion. Um, but what I find really interesting is that these plaques were also found in people's houses. So they had their own kind of devotional altars or places of worship, uh, 
inside the home and that they use those images uh, there. So, so it's, it's the way they use them that I find so interesting too. So I didn't list this as a question, but I hope you don't mind. So um, I'm sure you're familiar with the fact that, you know, lootings are still occurring now, right? Yes. And uh, Target is often pre-Islamic works. And yes. that's really concerning because obviously all of this is pre-Islamic. And so do you think that, you know, there might come a time where we don't have access to like, because you know that this is representative of women to a certain extent, just because of these archeological digs, right? Yes. And so if you don't have access to what's in these digs, then can we even piece together our history again? Like if we can't find the pieces ever again? I understand your worry. And you know, I don't blame you for worrying about that because there's such a bias against the pre-Islamic material um, these days. And I would say, especially in the last few years um, with the rise of Daesh, which was just so heartbreaking for all of us who care about um, that area, not just because um, antiquities were destroyed, but because so many people were killed and their ways of life. So I, I want to mention that because I don't want to leave the impression that we um, rate antiquities above people, obviously. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. all of my work that I've done about these antiquities, I've always said uh, that the reason that they're so important is that they have to do uh, with with the heritage and the feeling of a sense of place and belonging for the people of those of the area and uh, uh yes it's true it's it's the world's heritage that's for sure but it's also the heritage of the people of the area and if you wipe it out it's a way of dissociating people from from their lands which i find really heartbreaking and if it's if it's completely removed then we can um then then people can begin to claim oh there was nothing like this in the past and that's very worrying but what i would say is that mesopotamia is so rich with the ancient past we're speaking about thousands and thousands of years um of settled life in, in an urban culture in big cities. And so there, when you go there, everywhere you put your foot, wherever you might walk underneath your feet, the ground under your feet is full of thousands and thousands of years of history. And I think that at this point, despite the heartbreak of the looting and all of the things that we've lost, they they can't win. They really can't win uh, because that heritage will still be there under the ground and, and the evidence will still be there. So um, we didn't discuss this on the list that you sent to me, but I want to remind you of the, or maybe you don't know, not a lot of people know of the story of um, what happened in the area of Mosul in the north of Iraq. Of course, ISIS, Daesh destroyed so much of the Assyrian um, palace uh, reliefs and the, the creatures that we call the Lamassu in Akkadian uh, language. That means those big winged bulls with the human heads and the horns. You can see them at the Metropolitan Museum. They're colossal, right? And these, they were very, very sadly 
um, destroyed um, in Nineveh and Nimrud um, during uh, this uh, horrible campaign by ISIS. And I was so heartbroken about that. But as uh, archaeologists uh, came back, when uh, uh, the place was taken over again by Iraqi forces, um, they went inside the tunnels below uh, Nineveh and new winged bulls emerged. So, and we hadn't known about those at all. And I began to think of them in this magical way, thinking you can't suppress them. You may have tried to destroy them, but new ones emerged out of the ground. And that really was such a comforting um, thing for me to see that you may try to destroy them, but there will be this other evidence of the past. Um, so I was very um, pleased and gratified uh, with that. So even much. though this doesn't have to do with our topic no, no, of women, it's very much but, actually uh, relevant to me because I like I think I use my podcast more as a way to find out actively about my heritage, but this obviously got derailed with um, the pandemic and a lot of other things. Yes. But I really wanted to reach out to the museum in Iraq, the Iraq National Museum, and um, talk about creating a digital archive. Because I think that like these pieces, like in an attempt to have this history never be suppressed, you know, and have it available to me here, because it's frustrating that I have to, you know, go halfway across the world to see this, despite the fact that it is my heritage and I want to be a part of it. So, yeah. Well, I think they, they, as far as I know, they are digitizing their collection and that this will be made available online. So there are, I'm happy to report efforts to do that. Um, and then this material will, will become uh, more available and with, with ideas like yours to put more and more information online, I think that's terrific. So we will see more of that. Can I ask you one more question on this tangent? And then um, do you think there's a problem with having art abroad or, you know, having this, these artifacts that are very much Mesopotamian in places like the Met or the British Museum or Oriental Institute? Um, yeah. Do you think they should be returned or they don't have a right to be abroad? Oh, well, this is a very complicated issue. And I don't think that there is, you know, one broad answer to all of them. I think in some cases, when, when the material has clearly been taken out illicitly, then yes, it has to go back. Um, there are certain pieces um, that are questionable and that, you know, the, that they have to go back. But then there are other things uh, where I think it would be damaging to return the object. Let me give you a perfect example, and that is the Ishtar Gate from Babylon, which was taken to uh, Berlin at the beginning of the 20th century. And what they did was they dismantled the gate. They took down the bricks, they put them in crates, and they sent them to Berlin. And then there they rebuilt it inside uh, this newly established museum that they created in Berlin at that time. So one can say, okay, give it back, but to dismantle the whole thing again and return it to Babylon um, would risk uh, damage to it, would risk loss of uh, materials. So from a conservational perspective, 
uh, I'm not sure that that would be the best thing to do. So that's why I say it's something that has to be considered on a case by case basis. And I don't, and I don't say everything has to be returned, but I, I think that some things ought to be returned as well. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, you talk about Greek influences on Mesopotamian art. Um, and so I was very curious about how the presence of the hermaphrodite was interpreted in ancient Near Eastern societies, especially at a time where now, you know, it's not accepting of, you know, that sort of... Right. I understand the question that you're coming up with because um, in Middle Eastern society today, uh, there's quite a great deal of conservatism and heteronormativity in terms of human relations. And in antiquity, it wasn't quite like this. Uh, people, um, ancient peoples were um, more accepting of diversity in many ways. Um, so I think that that's one thing that we can keep in mind, although I don't want to paint a picture of a utopian society of equal rights either. It was a patriarchy, it was a patriarchal system um, where certainly men had more and better rights than women. However, there were certain things that were more acceptable at the time. The question of the, her the image of the hermaphrodite is that there weren't such images in Mesopotamia until after the arrival of Alexander of Macedon and his troops, um, which was in 331 BC. And then um, by the time he arrived in 331 BC, Mesopotamia was already thousands of years old. It was a very ancient culture already. Um, and you know, he, um, I don't know if you realize this, but he in fact died there. This is where this was, he died there in 323. And he in fact made Babylon uh, a, a, a royal capital city for himself. So he wanted to, um, he, he and his troops and, and the people who came with him brought with them many ideas uh, from Greece but they also adopted a lot of the local culture. So what I find fascinating about that time period is what we see is a, a range of three different types of art and they, they created communities. For example, after the death of Alexander, there was the establishment of Seleucia on the Tigris, which is a little bit south of Baghdad. Um, and this was really uh, set up as a Greek city. But people began to intermarry and intermingle very soon. Um, and so we get a range of three different types of works of art. We get the traditional Mesopotamian that continues. We get imported things that people brought from Greece directly. And we can tell because of the materials and the technologies that are used on them in terms of the figurines and what have you. And then we begin to get a completely hybrid mix, a mixture of Greek and Mesopotamian, which is really beautiful um, in so many ways. And it shows that uh, these two cultures became combined. So um, that this is a really fascinating period um, of Mesopotamian history that I think is too much neglected. We know that uh, Alexander and his followers 
um, continued to maintain the cults and the religious practices of the Babylonians. They celebrated the New Year's festival, the Akitu festival. Um, they they uh, continued to provide for the gods and their temples in Babylon and uh, other major sites. So they, very, they were very respectful to, to the place and they integrated into the place and adopted many of the ways um, of uh, the culture in which uh, they entered. Uh, so the hermaphrodite is something that came in the iconography, in the pictorial representations. Um, there weren't earlier images of intersex people in Mesopotamia. And I think, I mean, obviously there must have been intersex people in the, in the community, I mean, in the, in the population, but they didn't represent them in works of art. And I think the reason for that is because for them, the ideal, the ideal image was the idealized, uh, super uh, masculine uh, form. For example, the image of uh, the Akkadian king Naram-Sin would be a, a, a perfect example, or the idealized female beautiful body where you have a kind of a slim figure um, of a woman and, you know, um, wearing jewelry and beautifully adorned. So these were the ideals that they represented. Um, so that doesn't mean that people like that didn't exist in the population, but only that they didn't represent everybody in these idealized forms. Okay, thank you. Um, and so next, Ishtar was many things. Um, she, among them was the goddess of love, sex, and fertility, but another is you know, the goddess of war. And so you have this woman, I mean, you know, deity woman, um, who's leading, supposedly leading ancient Mesopotamian men into battle. And so it's a very weird gender dynamic at a point where you've just stated, you know, there's still a patriarchy. And so were women in general, well, two questions, I guess, is one, how are men comfortable, if you can answer that, like entering battle as a woman as their guide? And then second of all, does this kind of bestow more or less power among Mesopotamian women in society? in that, you know, they have power in their sexuality, but their sexuality is also just depicted as an object of the male gaze, so. Well, I mean, this is such a great question and, and it's so complicated too, because yeah. on the one hand, it, is, it is a patriarchy, but on the other hand, if we read the mythology of Ishtar, she is a very, very powerful female figure, but she's not a normal woman, as you said, she's divine. So because she's divine, it allows her to, to transgress the, the norms that society has set up for women, right? So she's able to go beyond the parameters of normal female behavior. And so she does these things with to an excess, right? Um, and in the legend of Gilgamesh, for example, she, she tries to seduce Gilgamesh yeah. at a certain point, and he's clearly really scared of her. And he says, no, thanks, but no thanks. I'm not going to have an affair with you. Because he says to her, look at what you did to all of the other men who had relationships with you. This one you turned into a frog, that one. You know, so he's just... He, he doesn't want to have anything to do with her. Why? Because he's, he's afraid of her because she's extremely beautiful. Um, 
but that extreme beauty was considered to be also frightening, a sign of power. I mean, her extreme beauty and allure um, would really sort of make men collapse, um, quite literally. And, and that's a way of saying, I think, I mean, for me, the way that I interpret it is it's a way of saying, yes, we are in charge of society and women have their place, but women can also frighten us. And so in mythology, they came up with this uh, um, idea of Ishtar as being um, the extreme of female power, really. Um, and so I think this is interesting about ancient societies, that they were able to understand that, that, that these sorts of gender hierarchies do include um, things like that. And I sort of laugh because... Um, in the Middle East today, um, there are many men who will say, oh, the woman is in charge of the house. <laughs> Which, it, yeah. So, yeah, I think that's very, so then in society, this doesn't really translate, I guess, since, you know, they're not divine. But maybe I'm misunderstanding this, but I was also under the impression that, you know, some women are occupying like priestess positions at the time. Was that? Yeah. So like, and again, like this kind of goes back to the idea that they're more defined than like normal women and whatnot. But I guess is, were, would you say that women were equal to their position in society today? No, because there's this representation in the gender hierarchy, correct? Well, look, I, what I would say is that um, women probably were not as well off back then as they are today, but that's only because all human beings are better off today than they were then, right? I mean, it's a general improvement um, for humanity as a whole. Um, uh, but in, in many respects, women had a lot of rights um, and privileges in ancient Mesopotamia that they didn't hold in other ancient cultures. So if we want to consider them on their own terms, I think we have to look at other ancient cultures. And they definitely held a lot of rights. For example, um, in the Sumerian period, as early as the third millennium BC, um, we have archives from women's run businesses. Women could be businesswomen, they ran their own businesses, they were in charge of workers, and their economic archives survive. In fact, one of the largest economic archives that we have from ancient Sumerian times, from the third millennium BC, is actually from a woman's business. So we know that women ran businesses. We know that women, that there were women who could read and write and correspond. And, um, the most fascinating character from that time, from the Akkadian period, was a princess called Enheduanna. She oh. was the daughter, yes, you know about Enheduanna. Yes. So she was the daughter of, of the king, and she was set up as the high priestess to, to the goddess of the moon, I mean, sorry, to the god of the moon um, at Ur, Nana. And uh, she was the high priestess there. And then after it became commonplace for kings to set up their daughters as high priestesses. Their daughter princesses held very um, important positions. And for Enheduanna, her father died 
and her two brothers became rulers after him, and she remained the high priestess. So you can argue that she held a position of power for a very long time, for decades, in fact. Um, even though her brothers, her father and her brothers came and went, she maintained um, her position for a long time. And the most fascinating thing about Enheduanna is that she could read and write, and she wrote hymns and poetry. And she's the first author that we know in history. And I say this because she's not the first female author. She's the first author at all. She's the first known person we have from anywhere at all in history who signed her work with her own name, and she was a woman. So the first author we know, it was a woman. It's very encouraging to me. Um, yeah, because I feel like, you know, you can look to the past to kind of learn more for the future is sort of how I look at looking at my heritage, especially since you're looking at a period that's so distinct from what we see in the Middle East today. Yes. Um, and so I guess we've kind of touched on this a bit in that um, we've like discussed Mesopotamia's like progressiveness in society. But I think, um, so you talk how, you talk about how the Greek are never really fully comfortable with the topic of breastfeeding in their art. And I think it's very interesting that like Mesopotamians were, do you think that this is just like a matter of like, okay, it's just not really accepted as much in society or like, does it, is it like saying something about the two cultures, if it's but, not, then that's... No, I mean, we can see some differences in the two cultures at that time. Yes, breastfeeding is not represented in ancient Greek art. That was not a subject that was represented in ancient Greek art. Whereas in Mesopotamia, it's very, very common. We often see women represented breastfeeding. And I think that that's because they idealize the role of the woman. And sometimes uh, the woman is shown as a beautiful young woman in the nude and she's breastfeeding. And so it's the idealization of the mother um, was something quite different from the way that we see mothers idealized today. They're still represented as alluring, as beautiful, um, and yet mothers at the same time. So they didn't separate those two things as in many um, societies today. Um, but breastfeeding was not a, a topic of ancient Greek art. Um, and there are other things that we know, for example, the rights of women in marriage contracts were better in ancient Mesopotamia and in ancient Egypt than they were in ancient Greece. Um, so in terms of legal rights, they, they were better off. I mean, as I said, you have to think of them in their own context of ancient societies. So, so ancient Mesopotamian or ancient Egyptian women definitely had better legal rights um, than their Greek sisters, let's say. Um, and we can see this after the Hellenistic period, because often if women um, could have a choice for, to, to draw up a marriage contract um, in, say, uh, that using Greek law or using Egyptian law during the Ptolemaic period, for example, they would prefer to choose the, the Eastern uh, legal system because it was more protective of their rights. And so there were rights for women that in antiquity were actually quite good. And they, they could hold position. I mean, we speak about women as, for example, weavers or potters 
they are business. Um, they wrote letters. We have correspondences of women writing letters. Um, so they they did hold important positions in society, even though these were patriarchal societies. Um, so I think we have to remember that the one doesn't rule out the other. And it's as you say, it's it's important for us to remind ourselves of these things because we're living at a time when so many rights of women are being um, destroyed, wiped out. And I would just say this, that being from Iraq and being of um, an older generation, I can certainly say that women's rights in Iraq have been heavily eroded since 2003 and that they were better um, in earlier days, in the times of my own mother, for example. So in the time of your grandparents, um, women's rights in Iraq were a lot better than they are now. Women have lost so many rights in places like Iraq. Um, and I, I find it tragic that in the time of your grandmother, there were better rights for women than they are today. And I think we have to remember that this is not the norm and that it hasn't always been the case. Yeah. So given that, like, it's obviously very frustrating to see that these, um, like I've noticed this as well, there's like quite a bit of data that like empirical data of how much more restrictive um, women's rights are and how they don't take up as much of the workforce. Um, and that's concerning, but I think that, I guess, do you think it would have, under any circumstance, have been possible for women to, like, even in the advent of Islam, like, gain some power within society? Because, like, listen, like, Mesopotamia was flourishing. It was so advanced. And even up until recently, it's been, you know, like, great education, really technologically advanced. And so you see this, like, developing society. And obviously, like, with the intervention of the United States, like, a lot of things going on. But even before then, women weren't really equal to men. So I guess I'm just curious as to like, I don't really understand why that happened in the Middle East and didn't happen here. You know, like Christianity doesn't necessarily impart an equal relationship either, but so. Well, yes, I, you're absolutely right. I mean, I really can't think of a society in which the positions of women and men are equal. Yeah. I mean, I do think that there are places that are better than others, but I, I still... I'm waiting for that moment of equality. I mean, we know that in the United States, women are still paid less for the same job that men uh, will do, you know, so on and so forth. I mean, we, we have a lot of rights in the United States, but we're still not there. We, we still have great strides to make also in the United States. So it is a struggle everywhere. Um, I think the unfortunate thing about a place like Iraq is that in century, um, feminists uh, and intellectuals fought for those rights. They fought for the rights of women in the mid 20th century. And those were um, greatly eroded at the end of the 20th century and, and in the early um, 21st century. Um, so that takes us out of our, you know, area of discussion. But I think it's a reminder that history doesn't always progress. It doesn't always get better and better. It goes up and it comes down and it goes back up again. And when you 
when when you finally get rights that you fought for, you can't just lean back and relax because then they can also be taken away from you. Um, and I think looking at antiquity is good because it's a reminder that this is not the natural state of things. There were periods in time in which it was acceptable for women to hold positions of authority, to run businesses and what have you. I see, I, I do see a light of the end of, at the end of the tunnel, even in places like Iraq. And I'll tell you why. I'm inspired by a lot of women who I meet in my work there, uh, people like um, our, uh, architects and heritage preservationists and, and professors um, and, and students at university who are really working so hard and uh, make and having a big impact um, there. So they haven't given up. And as long as they haven't given up, I think it's, it's really our duty to, to support them in that effort. Yeah, I agree. Oh, sorry. Um, so I know we spoke about Anhidwana, but I was wondering if there were female artisans that you knew of at, in that time period, because there are a couple examples of literate women, but I was not able to find female artisans. And no. if there are, were women, or if they were depicting women, were women being depicted differently than male artisans would depict? Mm -hmm. I wish we knew the answer to that. The truth is that artists in general didn't sign their works, um, whether, whether male or female. So we assume that most, most artists were uh, men, uh, but uh, in terms of, you know, sculpting stone and what have you, we assume that most of the artists were men. Uh, if you're going to sculpt the stone in the palace or on, a, on the side of a mountain. However, we know that women um, did things like weaving and ceramics. And these are artisanal uh, works that we know that they were involved in. We know that from the texts that describe their daily lives and, and things that they did. So if they were able to, to, to create ceramics, then it's not so far-fetched to think that some of the terracotta reliefs and figurines were also made by women. So I think, I think that the, the question is still open. Did they make some of those figures themselves? And I do, I actually do think that th this is possible, that some of these figures were made by women, but that we haven't given it enough attention. That's amazing. Well, it's kind of not as amazing that we don't know, but I think it's amazing that they could have had the possibility to do so and that yes. we can still find out. Um, and so finally, I just, if you had to describe in woman of ancient Mesopotamia, what would she be like? Well, I think that she would have, uh, she would have, let's start with the way she looked. She would have had uh, long hair um, that she would very often um, either pull back and wear in a bun or sometimes wear tied at the back of her head. She would wear um, a lot of jewelry. Uh, um, definitely earrings. Earrings were usually large um, and uh, 
as I said, hooped earrings were very popular. Uh, many necklaces and chokers. Uh, it seems like they wore a lot of chokers around the neck. Um, so uh, very we, reminiscent of my age. Yes, you're, you're actually doing the Mesopotamian look yourself. So yeah. you can see that. A lot of chokers around the neck. You can see them wearing them in several levels on the neck. Um, they wore, of course, bracelets. Um, and anklets, things like that. Uh, we know, for example, from the tombs of the queens of Assyria that they owned loads of jewelry. They really had lots and lots of earrings and bracelets and um, rings and so on. So that they, they, they liked to dress themselves up in jewelry. Clothing would have been made out of wool, woven wool, um, sometimes woven very finely and um, uh, with an open weave so that it could be worn in the, in, in the heat as well as the cold. And they would have wrapped that up um, around their bodies in, in a long uh, gown. Um, often they would wear a shawl with that. Um, and as far as makeup is concerned, we do have some evidence that they wore eyeliner. So their eyes would have been lined with kohol, uh, with this dark uh, liner, um, and maybe they would have used other natural products um, for uh, making the cheeks rosy or the lips rosy, but this is the evidence that we have for cosmetics. They definitely um, did use these things. Um, in terms of how they would have spent their daily lives, I would say the majority of women were involved in household uh, work, right? Caring for family and so on. But as I said, women are also known to have been weavers. They are known to have uh, worked in ceramics. They were priestesses. Um, they uh, could even own businesses. So they were involved in other aspects of society besides the household. Although I think it's probably safe to say that most of them were involved in um, household and the care of the family and, and uh, um, child raising and so on. Well, I, well, that's all my questions for you, but I mean, thank you so much really for a number of things, one being answering my questions and taking the time to meet with me, but really like engaging with me about what I'm so interested in and what no one else seems to know anything about, which is frustrating, but it's, I feel so lucky that, you know, it, I can speak to people like you. So thank you so much. It's my pleasure, Nina. It was really nice to speak to you today. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Um, I hope you have a lovely week or weekend, I guess. Weekend. <laughs> okay, bye-bye.